Hi, I'm Sean Eckford, one of the board members here at the Sunshine Coast Festival of the Written Arts and producer of our daily festival podcasts. And it's hard to believe we're already nearing the end of our 2018 festival, which means our final podcast of the weekend. Every so often, I'll highlight a theme, and I'll I'll tell you, mothers have figured pretty strongly this year in countless ways. But between the Hutchinson Memorial Lecture Saturday night and this morning's presentation by Clem and Olivier Martini, the theme was calls to action, if I had to pick one. In the Hutchinson lecture, journalist Deborah Campbell gave a somewhat bleak picture of the social media landscape's influence on journalism and politics. She also talked in the Q&A about being the last of what she fears is a dying breed. One of them is now an accountant. One did his PhD and is a stay-at-home dad. And his wife is a lawyer, so that's helping. Um, and, um, well, two, two are still th- uh, full-time. I teach at a university. Um, and another one is um, running his own company and, you know, is a part-time curator at a museum. So basically half are not able to be full-time anymore. And that's quite normal now. And I would say... Uh, uh, that's 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 more than normal. It's it's becoming really impossible. I worry about the next generation. I mean, I was mentored by um, older writers who had experience and talent. I was mentored by editors, and now sometimes if I work for a magazine, I'm like the editor doesn't know ethically how this works. Like the, the ethics are handed down. There's historical knowledge that gets handed down about how things are done correctly. And I worry about what's going to happen. And also when people are writing at the side of their desk, they don't have time to do it. Or so you're seeing a lot of, a lot of what, what passes as journalism is really cheap. It's really a salacious or it's, it's personal essays or it's, it's sort of stuff that they can write in a day. Stuff that takes, stories that I've worked on have taken six months. For a magazine story, nobody has that time anymore to do that digging. That's why I was talking about Seymour Hirsch. You know, he would spend six months on a story or a year or two years on a story. Um, that takes resources, not just talent, not just drive, but the resources. And I, and I do think that, um, yeah, about half of journalists are gone now. So it's an extinction. Campbell's call to action was to support local long-form journalism, and consider unplugging once in a while, if not completely. Sunday morning, author Clem Martini and illustrator Olivier Martini discussed their books, Bitter Medicine, about coping with Olivier's mental illness and the unraveling about navigating the system after their mother's dementia diagnosis, which in both cases turned out to be a real struggle with both the medical community and bureaucrats. I was a member of the uh, Mental Health Commission for a number of years, um, and I have been uh, um, on a number of committees reporting to various uh, government levels. Uh, you know, what's to do? I think, um, I think one of the things that we have to do is insist that um, the government respond to their own reports. As I say, uh, you know, in every report, in, in every report that has um, examined the condition of 
um, care for those with mental illnesses, they all say it's underfunded and neglected. And um, we have to insist that they act on that, that it has to be funded more fully, um, that if indeed they're going to rely upon community services, those community services have to be funded. We often talk about the questions our audience asks. Michael Redhill, whose latest novel, Bellevue Square, plays with reality, well, not just a little, but a lot. And he came across an unusual situation. Someone in the audience who'd actually read a different version of the book than everyone else. Did you not at some point allude to the fact that Gene Mason was in a car accident and had surgery? I don't think so. Which, which draft of the book were you reading? It actually was a draft. Oh, really? Yeah, it said it was a draft. It said it was not the final. Oh, that's interesting. So you read the, you read the ARC, which stands for Advanced Reading that Copy. Could, yeah, so they published that very early. Like They brought it out very early because oh. they wanted to get some groundswell for the book. Okay. Uh, oh, so that's fascinating, yeah. Yes, because I thought there was well, a car. There was a car accident in an earlier yes. draft. And if, if we could have this woman removed now, please... <laughs> from the room. You're part of the unofficial history of the book. So like I did yesterday, I brought in a little extra help today. My colleague Sophie Woodruff from The Coast Reporter caught up with author Kim Fu, whose most recent novel is called The Lost Girls of Camp Forevermore. I was just curious, is this the first time that you've uh, come to this festival? Yes, it's my first time on the Sunshine Coast. It's my first time in a float plane. Uh, it's all new. How How's it going so far? Um, this is a incredible festival it's really fun and it's in such a beautiful place uh, and I love the venue and I've loved getting to meet so many lovely people um, so I so I um, was able to, to catch your reading and, and uh, listen to the Q&A afterwards or lo- lots of interesting questions but I was curious any that you were a little surprised by or or uh, that you that you didn't necessarily expect um, the last question he asked about if all of the stories were that were that dark basically um and that one i'd never heard that one before um but i mean it's it's a fair it's a fair question um (laughs) i do think yeah i do think that that books need to vary in tone they can't be relentlessly grim and i hope that that's not how my book comes across um but yeah that one i'd never heard before and and then there there were a couple questions um around um the residency that that you had up in, in the yukon um you mentioned kind of that that the that the book, uh, your latest novel, was actually kind of born there. Um, so I thought that was kind of great, considering that you were there during the winter time, and this is a book, you know, about summer camp. <laughs> um, so, so can you? I was just curious if you could you kind of tell us how, what that experience was like, and kind of how it contributed to the Lost Girls of Camp Forevermore. Uh, sure. So before I went on this residency, I had the characters in mind. Um, but I, I kind of didn't know how they fit together. Uh, and then I was there from October to December uh, in 2015, and that's during the freeze-up. So the Yukon River up there freezes over, um, and everything everything changes. Uh, the temperature gets you know below four, minus 40. People told me not to wear contacts because they might freeze in my eyes. <laughs> um, yeah, I hope you listened to that advice. I did, I did. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, and then... People very casually had all these survival skills. Um, even though the town itself is like very comfortable and modern, uh, nevertheless, every time you would drive out or drive down to Whitehorse or whatever, you had to be you had to have multiple spare tires and fire starter and like an extra tank of gasoline. And there's a lot of 
you know, living out there so isolated, uh, you have to think about your survival in a different way. Um, and I was doing all kinds of things that there was lots of advice I didn't follow. Like I went hiking a lot by myself, like you know, out into the, the ice and I was spending a lot of time lying on the river at night because it was just so beautiful. And you can lie in the middle of the Yukon River because it's totally frozen solid. Um, and so it was just an inspiring time. And then, then it also led me to think about all these themes of survival and, and to be think more about like the vulnerability of people's bodies. Um, and then I was already interested in the dynamics of little girls, the social dynamics of them. And I thought about what would, how could we see those dynamics escalated? Uh, so with the same kind of power dynamics they always have, but when the stakes were higher, maybe even their survival or their lives. Um, and then, yeah, and then I had the space and the time to, you know, to focus and to write and to read and, and yeah, and the residency is where it all cracked open. Uh, it almost sounds like kind of immersive research. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in a, in a sideways way, like in a way that I couldn't have predicted. <laughs> I mean, this is your second novel and your first, it received critical praise and it ca- came out of your master's in creative writing at UBC. Um, so that's kind of the dream, I think, for a lot of graduates. Um, but not that uh, it's kind of rare for that to happen. Um, so I was just curious how kind of that initial success affected kind of your process when it came to, to getting into this second novel. Yeah, it, it actually, it, it slowed me down a little bit. It's, it stopped me up, the, f- the first novel. Um, even though it was very positively received and I had, you know, an incredible moment in the sun with it, uh, it was the first time I realized what it would be like to have a book in the world um, and to you know, to exist as a public person um, and to receive critical responses, uh, to read reviews of your work, to, you know, to see yourself in the, in th- things I, I only thought about in a positive way, like, oh, you know, what it would be like to see myself in the New York Times. But then it was like, to see yourself in the New York Times is actually a little bit, is very frightening, right? Or to, to go on the radio or, and it, so, and it did, uh, it did bleed into my process. Like I was thinking a lot about what people wanted, um, both, my agent and my editor but then also I would stop writing things because I would think about people in my life reading it or yeah and it and then I would get caught with ideas that I could not write like ideas that didn't compel me but I thought sounded good as concepts uh, and so it was a long time before I came back to the way I actually work which is you know following what is drawing me and not what I think anyone else wants um, which is the only way I can work ultimately and I guess that kind of brings you to the Yukon somehow, <laughs> gives you a little more freedom. Yeah, and that and that helped too. Like that was it was a complete break from my or my regular life and from, you know, even like like the internet access I had was limited, right? So, it, which which helps a lot, right? If you're if you're using it in a as a tool instead of as a thing, this thing that like weaves into your entire life and it's like rewiring your brain. Um, yeah, and then I could I could really get back to the way that I work most naturally. <laughs> Got it. Okay, well, from, from uh, the Yukon uh, back to the summer in the Sunshine Coast, um, you, was there anybody that you were able to catch that, you, that, that really, uh, th- that you were excited about? Or? Um, I saw Katharina Vermette uh, on Friday night, uh, and she, she was really great. Um, I feel like her, her writing is, is very intense and very beautiful and very intelligent, um, and it was nice to see her as, like, a person, like, that she's so human and warm in person and... Yeah, and to sort of remember, like, all that great artistry comes from, you know, an ordinary person who's, like, willing to let... Who, she, she, she had a lot of intimacy in her event that I really appreciated. 
Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today, and good luck with, uh, with the next leap into uh, whatever projects uh, wait. Thank you. It was my pleasure. <laughs> Sunday's New Voices Day here at the festival, and this year we asked Daniel Heath Justice, a UBC lecturer and author of Why Indigenous Literatures Matter, to set up and host the program. He chose to talk with Carly Baker, whose recently published short story collection is called Bad Endings, and to Neil Campbell, author of the poetry collection Hashtag Indian Love Poems, and I caught up with the three of them after they got off stage. Yeah, this is the most yeah, fun. Yeah, I had a great time. Yeah, I was really looking forward to this conversation, because, well, we all know each other, too, for one, like, so we're all familiar with each other's work, and yeah, I love these guys. I knew we were going to be laughing a lot. It was good. Yeah. Now, going in. You, you set this up for yes. us, Daniel, so yes. you knew the dynamic that we were going to see on stage? Well, you, know, you never know the dynamic, but I trusted them. I mean, they're both, not only are they amazing writers and really good human beings, but they're also great professionals. Uh, so I knew we'd have a great conversation, but you never really know where that conversation is going to go, especially um, I wanted to make sure that we talked about some substantive issues, and uh, I think we there was a lot of good balance in all of that, but I, I had no doubt they'd be great. My only concern was that I wouldn't be able to keep up with them. <laughs> <laughs> so is this the first time you've ever done something together on stage like that? Yes. Yeah. It is. I think this is only like our second time meeting in real life. Yeah. I saw Tenille read at the Real Vancouver Writers yeah. Series in November, I yeah. guess, and that's when we met for the first time. Yeah, a fan so, girl's a little bit. You're going to take it on the road then? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> we should if Daniel yeah. comes with us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, all right. All right, this is happening. You heard it here first, folks. Now, we, we think highly of our audience around here. They usually ask pretty decent questions, but I'm curious to know, is there a question you were dying someone would ask and they didn't? Even the, Including Daniel, by the way. Was there something you wanted him to ask that, that he didn't ask you on stage? That's a dangerous question to ask to Neil. Yeah. I was like, I kind of wish Daniel would have asked me for a single, because there's this cute guy in the back, but he didn't. So now he's gone. So thanks, Daniel. That could have been the love of my life. Sorry. And he's gone. But no, people are usually pretty great. Um, people are pretty open with my content and with the crowd that we had. I was happy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think there was anything that I hoped that people would ask. I was just, I'm always really grateful when folks um, ask questions, as, as Daniel sort of like, because the, the comments are, are a little bit harder to know how to engage Occasionally with. Occasionally there's a speech. Yeah. Yes. And those are definitely harder to engage with. So I'm very grateful that the audience was, uh, was forthcoming with the questions. You mentioned the, the fact that you did want to deal with some serious issues, but leavened with a, a ton of humor. How, how, do you, how do you put that balance together when you're doing something? like this in front of an audience I think part of it was what they were talking about with the issue of humor this is this is life as an indigenous person right like you you have to deal with challenging and and we all have different challenges right um, but I think in in our world there's a lot of heavy heavy stuff but it's not only the heavy there's a lot of love and laughter and a lot of joy and so I think you just it, it's kind of more natural for us but we're often pushed into a place of, of being expected to be stoic or whatever, the stereotypes of, of, uh, of kind of solemnity. And I, I think 
the reality of Indigenous experience is a very different one. So it's, it's not like you, you, you say, okay, we've got to talk about some heavy stuff, we better make sure we lighten it up too, it just kind of, that's the way it happens? Well, I think humor is just a natural way of accepting, like, yeah, sometimes shit sucks, but we're still going to laugh about it because the joke is we're still here, <laughs> like, and we're surviving, we're thriving, we're educated, we're mastering like all forms that we go into, be it art, academics, science, and there's a lot of joy in our life with sadness. Yeah, yeah, the two go together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your time today, guys. Thanks yeah. so much for coming. Thank, Thank you. you. One of the traditions uh, here at the festival is our contests. We got a record number of entrants, it turns out, to the 10 different quizzes, skill testing puzzles, matching authors to the fun fact from their bio in our program, as well as a chance at writing a limerick based on an opening line we supply. So I sent Sophie out to find some people who'd been stretching their brains on this year's quizzes. Hi there. Hi. Uh, I'm a volunteer. Mm -hmm. I've been... um assigned by my superiors to speak with people who might be looking over at the contest board <laughs> and I can't help but notice that we're here at the contest board and you're looking at it. Oh Sorry, I'm just trying oh to no. see if I'm okay. So and? and I was curious, did you, did you guys fill out any of the contests? Did you do any of the contests? Yeah, we did. We, uh, yeah, we did some of them, yeah. Okay, and, and are you, do you come every year? Do you do the contests every year? No, this is the first time I've done the contest. But actually, we filled it out, but then we never uh, put it in. We just did, yeah, it for we fun. just did it for fun. Okay, which contest did you do? Um, we did this one, the, uh, what do they call it? How's your IQ? The one about the foodie things and spelling. We did about four of them, I think, yeah. Oh, and there, there's, there's ten, so I mean, that's, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good number. Fun. Yeah, it was fun to do it, yeah. But not, not as a contest, just just to do it. Yeah. Okay. yeah. How hard were they? Uh, not hugely hard, but they were nicely challenging. The good level, yeah, okay. for me anyway. Any favorites? <laughs> I like this one. How's your IQ? The IQ. Yeah. yeah. That's a good one. That's always we good. Like yeah. This one. And we also like the favorites of British Columbia. with the different cities? Are are you are are you from British Columbia? We we're not no. together. Oh, okay. Oh, you're separate. You both just came here and it just happened to be... Each other's brains, too. We're, we're together. And you were good at the, the trees one. Oh, we, yeah, the trees one was fun. Any that almost got you stumped? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Every one. We're not stumped, winners. Stumped, you know? <laughs> yeah, stumped. <laughs> I got that. Yeah, we really enjoyed them. So, you know, I would suggest doing it. Again. It's just that, it's yeah. It's a nice thing to just do while you're waiting around. Well, thanks so much for um, for for speaking with us, and uh, good luck next year if you actually compete. <laughs> thank you. Now, as we record this, festival attendees are off enjoying the annual salmon dinner and looking forward to our closing event with Tom Wilson, the singer, songwriter, and artist's debut book, Beautiful Scars, tells the story of peeling back the layers of his life to discover his identity. Simon Parody and Joe Stanton will provide the music tonight. And I'm going to close the podcast, well, because as podcast producer, I can do anything I like, by going back to my time in Kingston, Ontario in the 80s, when Tom and his band, the Florida Razors, were a sure bet for those of us who wanted a dose of rock and roll. There's a 